Welcome to Street Fight. I am Brian, the person on this show that you know because I'm the host. And uh, this week, my co-host, two of them. That's right, motherfuckers. I can do two co-hosts, too, not just one. And who knows how often I'm going to do that. But uh, I got Sean and Aaron from the Seriously Wrong podcast and Poppin' Boy on Means TV. What's up, guys? Hey, uh, thanks for having us on. Yeah, co-hosts, double. We co-host our podcast, so we're co-co-hosting. Yeah, we're used to co-hosting. We co-host every week on our show together. But yeah, um, but this this voice is Sean. I'm Sean. Right. I'm Aaron. And uh, when I said I'm, this, I was pointing at my own voice. <laughs> I don't like to say guest, mainly because like when you say guest, it it kind of like uh, uh, means I have to interview you. You know what I mean? Like if I, right. I say co-host, that means you're responsible for saying stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Bring without me prompting right. it. Yeah, guest is more like this is my place, and you're welcome here as a guest, but it is mine. And co-host is more like, hey, we're all we're all collaborating here. It's anarchism, basically. Yeah, you know, exactly. where it's like, I don't, I don't take any, uh, I don't, I don't, I'm not higher on the hierarchy than you guys. You guys are the same level as me in this it, situation. I guess it sort of it also kind of relieves you of the burden of hospitality. Like you don't have to bring us uh, glasses with a little bit of lemon and all that sort of stuff. Like <laughs> we're not exalted guests either, so it's right. very, True. very, yeah, salt of the earth, pure kind of thing. It's great. It, it, so okay, uh, I obviously you guys have the podcast, which has been around forever. When did you start, actually? uh 2014 2014. yeah 2014 yeah i'll tell you what guys like since that time maybe 2015 i would say maybe 2015 people have been trying to hook me up with you guys uh the the whole fucking time you've been around i think because <laughs> i have been hearing the name of the show i've listened to i listened to episodes when people you know turned me on to it and i liked it but I told you this in the DM, and I've actually told this. I talked about this on the Colin show last week. Uh, I'm intimidated by everybody. Like every single person that's on the internet intimidates me. So I was very intimidated by you guys. Plus, plus, uh, you do a smarter show than me. You know, <laughs> like you do smart guy stuff. I do dumb guy stuff. <laughs> Yeah, I, I I completely relate to feeling intimidated by everybody on the internet. It's like, oh, if we send them a message, are they going to be offended? Are they like, oh, I don't want to do something with you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and I think um, I think you're a really funny dude. So I find that intimidating too. Like seeing these really banger tweets and making <laughs> me laugh and stuff. That's that's extra intimidating for me. But yeah, the. the there's a weirdness in approaching people that you have parasocial relationships with in some way, like having listened to their show and stuff. And people are just so like, like, I don't know. Like there is a thing that happens and I'm sure you guys have had this too, where like there are people who want you to be on the first episode of their podcast and you're kind of like, okay, you asking me to be on your show probably means that you think I'm going to draw people to your show. 
You do not want to have me draw people to your show until you know how to do your show. <laughs> you know what I mean? So like, I have that thing in my mind of like, uh, 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 you know, learn how to do your show, do, you know, hone it, figure out what the show is and then ask me to come on. And once the show is some, cause you know, in 2014, we'd been doing this show for three years and, uh, I don't think we even knew what we were doing yet. I don't, I don't know when I figured out what I'm, I'm doing. It takes people underestimate how long it takes to figure out how to do your podcast, especially now when yeah. they think like, we would you just, we'll fucking just start the podcast. And then in two weeks we'll start the Patreon and boom, we'll quit our jobs. <laughs> yeah. I feel like I've been, we've been figuring out how to make our show continuously over this eight years like it's kind of always changing and i feel like there's been multiple moments where we're like oh, okay now we've like we're hitting a stride like we get it we've we've really like honed these different elements we do the sketches and like try to research stuff or whatever uh, oh the editing's improved in this way but it, it always feels like there's it's more of like a shifting changing thing over time than um uh, just like, oh, I figured it out at this one moment. Uh, but definitely, like, looking back now at those very first episodes, I'm glad we weren't, like, put on the biggest podcasts in the world or something, being like, <laughs> judge them based on these episodes first. Yeah, I think the number we've said before is, like, episode 100 is around the time. Like, Honestly, right now, I feel like 150 is great. It's just <laughs> <laughs> start there, and if you like the ones after that, you can go back after. But Yeah, once you've come to get a shine to us. Yeah. Well, it's also about, like, this, this I, I hate to call it a space or whatever, but this kind of uh, uh, left podcast space that you guys were i mean obviously you guys are super early in too me and brett were were started in 2011 uh we were pretty kind of early to the party some people think we're the first to the party <laughs> but like i don't know i i think there were podcasts that talked about this stuff before us it was just that like something that happened on our show led to the 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 biggest led to Chapo. So right. like that was sort of like uh uh but people even saw that and were like you know those guys were around for they pe to to people those guys were around for like 6 months and then they started making $100,000 a month and that is just like not what happened at all, you know. <laughs> and like I don't the first when you do a political when you do political content like the first year or 100 episodes is like what am i like what do i make fun of like am, am i making fun of stuff is making fun of stuff okay how many jokes do i put in how how few joke like there there's that kind of thing where you're like how much of this show should be me trying to get a message across and how much of this show should be geared toward funny that like I don't think we figured that out. I, I don't think I figured that out until like probably 2015, 2016 until four years in was just like, I don't know, man. Like I come on the show. I talk about what's wrong with the world. There are no laughs and uh, we're just yelling about stuff until, you know, I decide, well, you got to let the air out of the balloon. And then now I've come around to the idea that like, <laughs> 
And I think you guys probably feel the same way because I, I did watch the first three episodes of Pop and Boy on Means TV, but like it is much easier to say, I'm going to make something funny uh, and I have these politics and they will show up in it. I don't have to like really worry about how much needs to be this and how much needs to be informative because I found, I found Pop and Boy to be... I don't know. I found it to be like way more informative than, than other things I've seen in the past about like capital and stuff like that. Like you guys really made something that, that like could be turned on by somebody like, I don't know, like that I could turn this on for somebody who's maybe conservative that would kind of understand what, what, what you're getting at and, and might change people's minds. And I did not get the vibe that it was preaching to. Oh yeah, thanks. I, I appreciate that. That's a really interesting. I wonder how that would go. Yeah, because I mean, we definitely did put comedy first, and like every, our whole writing process is like, how is this? How is this next scene going to be funny? How how do we develop these characters in a way that is like keeping the funny and cutting the rest? Um, but yeah, just having the politics that you do going in, um, like yeah, comedy, comedy. One of the things that it's doing is like revealing inconsistencies or hypocrisies or. Um, and like what you choose to focus on through that lens has a politics to it. So yeah, there isn't, an, there isn't really, um, and uh, yeah, I think, I think comedy can be really, really politically astute and informative while being funny first and foremost. Yeah. I you think should. too, uh, like thinking back on our show and the developing of the sketch worlds on the podcast, um, like you talking about not knowing how much funny stuff versus serious stuff to do in an episode, we kind of do this thing where we're always like going back and forth between just straightforward talking with maybe a bit of jokes, but then we're like, okay, we got to do some sketches for this episode and we'll pepper them in. So there's kind of always this built-in mechanism for being like, okay, this is where the jokes are going to go. But there's definitely certain times and certain topics where we like, Oh, how do we joke about this? This is like really serious and kind of not funny at all. And um, we've done a few episodes without sketches, but um, I, I think we've gotten a lot of practice and just like trying to find the funny angle on a particular thing. And then when going into Papa and Boy, we we had already pre-built out this sort of universe through sketches on the podcast. And then like, just trying to crystallize that and do it in as dense a way as possible for this animated series. I feel like it all kind of like fell together naturally with these political things we've been mulling over for years on the show. It's, it's really cool. Uh, I have this like theory. This is what changed street fight in a very early, like in, in not in a very early, I was probably three or four years in, I, you know, all of our episodes are available uh, I hate that they're on the uh, podcast app and I wish somebody would just delete the like everything from 2011 to 2017 or something <laughs> like I, I hate the idea of it but there 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 was there were months and months and there, there were a couple of years there where it was like we were sort of ranting in a way and I hate rant comedy like Dennis Leary shit and and like that kind of thing Lewis Black like right. that kind of stuff. I hate it. And I was just like noticing like, fuck, man, we're getting on the show and we're like ranting about what's wrong. It's around um, first um, first Occupy Wall Street, which is when we actually started. But then moving into the 2012 election, 
and then the stuff after that and it was like man i don't think anybody wants to hear two guys just screaming about what's fucked up and uh so i personally without ever sort of talking to brett about it or anything right away was like i'm going to treat this show like a balloon where like uh you you keep blowing it up the tension is i also use a soccer analogy actually uh but you keep ratcheting the tension up i guess and then every i i just i just decided like every minute or two minutes i'm just going to tell a joke to let the air out of the balloon or score a goal like that was always my like that was my thing so for a few years that was sort of my job that i felt i took that on as my job without actually saying anything and and then i i said something to brett and then he took that on it as his job i think that's like when the show started to really take off where it was just like let's just keep letting the air out of the balloon over and over and over again and then uh over the past two or three months i just i've just been like i'm just it's a comedy show now and uh i will make sure that my values get out there but i just want to goof around at this point <laughs> now that i'm by myself it's just a goof show but uh i i thought pop and boy so pop and boy takes place in a universe where there's only dads and sons which it's an yeah, incredible it's, idea it's a fatherocracy <laughs> Uh, yeah, and it all started. We did we did this bit on our show where one of us would pretend to be. We'd alternate who is the dad and who's the son, doing life lessons. Uh, and one day, um, I was doodling and I wrote the history of all hitherto existing society is the history of struggle between Papa and Boy, and uh, ex yeah, something like that. Yeah, and it's just when we're goofing around doing sketches, it was like a really easy role play to fall into. Okay, well, one of us is going to be the father, one of us is going to be the son. Uh, and then and who's yeah, the just, jerk? Who knows what's true? Who does? Yeah. Like, there's all these dynamics you can play with in that. And, and yeah, it just ends up becoming this entire universe where like you can project onto this Papa's oppressing boys political system they live under this fatherson system a dystopian uh pseudo capitalist worldview that is based on the dominance of papas over boys and you can project onto it all these different weird political things from the current society whether it's like patriarchy or white supremacy or bosses and employees landlords and tenants and like all these hierarchical relationships just kind of make fun of them all at once while also kind of staying in our wheelhouse of like, yeah, it's easy for us to just be a papa and a boy. It feels natural. It's yeah. We're, can I ask you guys, uh, were you guys around for the no dads era of Twitter by any chance? Like, do you, do you remember no, any I, of that? I it never used vaguely familiar. I never I used Twitter until the pandemic. Ah, okay. So I'll tell you, but like, I don't know. It would have had, it was way, way, way long time ago. It might've been like 2010, 12, but there was this era where I don't know if it was some academic or activist. Cause I was so, you know, early on, well, I signed up for Twitter to, uh, uh, to communicate with Opie and Anthony fans <laughs> and Opie and Anthony to participate in the Opie and Anthony show. <laughs> um, <laughs> But I quickly, after, you know, I, I was only on it for a little while before, you know, I kind of, Anthony from that show, you know, basically turned into like a real Nazi and it turned me off. So I, I had got hooked. I had started to read left stuff and understand like leftist stuff. And, uh, and I was in college 
for I, I went to college real late in life for uh, uh, sociology uh, or political science at the time, but I hated political science. I thought it was like the absolute dumbest discipline in the world. Um, but like uh, there was a guy on there that had developed a sort of, it's nothing like what you guys did, but a, 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 um, a philosophy called no dads where basically it was, his way of doing non-hierarchical society where nobody tells anybody what to do. So if a story would happen where uh, somebody was telling somebody what to do, anything like drug war stuff or anything, he would hashtag it. No dads. And I fucking thought of that right away when I started watching the show. And, and what struck me was like the no dads thing was very interesting to me when it happened way long time ago and you could probably search the the goddamn hashtag and still find stuff that it was very interesting to me at the time but brian now would not find that funny at all or interesting would just think it's stupid and like your show almost is that sort of philosophy like turned just like 10 percent, and it's fucking hilarious it's like so it's so fucking well done it is exactly how did you guys like decide like I guess like my question is like what is the theory like did we, did you guys go to school and like read theory and all that stuff because it does not it is not a hard show to understand the philosophy is very easy for anybody to understand but it is also like stuff that is in like theory that you read in college and stuff like that. Like, where did you guys get like the theoretical basis for what you do? Yeah. Well, you didn't go to university, right? Aaron? No, no, I no. didn't either. Um, I basically <laughs> learned, learned all this stuff. Like first arguing on Facebook and Twitter with people and being like, okay, I need an argument against this argument. So you're like, my earliest different arguments were them. the deviant art forums. Actually, when I was like 12, that's when I got started getting into uh, philosophy. Um, <laughs> but then I think also the format of our show really helps where we're like, okay, we're going to tackle a big topic this week. So like, what, what has everybody written on this thing? So, and then we'd like read stuff about it and, and, like try to become at least a relative expert on it. So you can try and explain a particular topic to people. And it, uh, if you're trying to learn a different thing for every episode, uh, you end up reading a lot of different leftist theory stuff and kind of like incorporating it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. We're, we're internet autodidacts. Uh, also, and also um, I animated the first episode which is available on YouTube now, by the way, but the, I animated most of the entire series. And I also am a self-taught animator when I was like in my early teens, uh, I got a pirated copy of flash shout out to the pirate bay. Um, <laughs> yeah. and I, uh, I love Newgrounds and like the albino black sheep and like that internet stuff, Weeble, all that sort of crap. And when I was like 14, I just got really into it. And every day after school, I just like, draw with my mouse and make little animations um, and, and then animated the ultimate showdown biggest yep. <laughs> youtube that you're just like dancing around getting to that point of the yeah. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> yeah, when I was when I was 14 in 2005, I animated the Ultimate Showdown with Neil Cesarega, which I just found out this week is the biggest cartoon in the history of Newgrounds. If you sort by views, boom, 14 year old me, Baby Sean, at the top of the list. I, I so I don't know if you guys know this, but I do a podcast called the POD Cast, uh, where I review new metal albums. And one of the things we do is on the Patreon, you can you can uh, sign up for $20 for one month, not over and over again, but you can sign up for $20 and pick a single that we will review. And somebody did a Neil C. Sierra single one time. And I was like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> it's like my, my reaction. But I also like really enjoyed it so you saying that name just jogged that loose in oh, my he's, brain he's super talented super and i i just when i was i met him through the something awful forums when i was like 13 or 14 and we were aol instant messenger friends and he like he invented animutation and potter puppet pals was like a really big thing he's like he's one of those like internet superstars uh yeah just <laughs> He, I was surprised by the music because I was like, it, it was the sort of thing where it was like, uh, uh, I, I think a lot of times there are times where people will put a song that they know I'm going to be mean to. And uh, I think that song specifically was one that they thought I was going to be mean about. And I was like, no, nah, it's pretty interesting. You know, I, I mean, I'm not generally mean about people's stuff, but uh, uh you know, I can be mean when I think something stupid and the person will never hear about it. <laughs> so, um, but so did you guys like, like, so are you reading theory now or are you, so when theory, the thing about theory to me, uh, I think a lot of people think street fight has been a show that says don't read theory, uh, because it's kind of, through the lens of two dumb guys but i don't think that people know that i've read a lot of that shit because again as a sociology major you you have to read all that shit and like um i kind of learned how to understand it and and one of the things that i have prided myself on is like i'm not gonna do i'm not gonna do like read theory I'm not going to yell at people for for not understanding it, but like I do want people to sort of start to develop their own their own theory instead of just going with somebody else's. And it feels like the the pop and boy thing. I mean, yeah, it's it's got a ton of Marxism in it, but I even think it's like almost like um, it's definitely like a more valuable tool than reading capital at this point i think you guys made something very valuable <laughs> oh thank you to, <laughs> yeah, to be on that level. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah we've i i think we've both read a fair amount of theory uh in various ways also i think like the thing with theory is that like it's kind of a specialized skill to read theory like you have yeah. to learn where the person 
what, when in time they were writing it, who they were responding to, what their verbiage means in this context, when they say this thing, what are they referring to? There's like a lot of like extra steps you have to go through. Yeah, the so, metatextual. Like I, and I feel like for people who are interested in that, that's awesome. You should do it. Going to university is a great way to do it or learning it yourself if you're self-motivated to do it. But like you can also like, there's lots of, resources available that make theory more accessible to people like youtube video essays are a good resource a lot of the time you have to double check things and make sure whatever but like you can find a lot of like lectures and other ways to get those same ideas rather than going and reading musty old texts unless that's your thing and in which case it's great um, i love mustiness <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying yeah. to find the mustiest thing to read. Musty, the mustiest text available. Greatest smell of a text. <laughs> I love when my text smells like that. But also, I really agree about the creating new theory thing. Like, uh, I hadn't really thought about Papa and Boy as theory, but it is in a way like uh, it's an expression of theory. It's like <laughs> it's one way to learn these ideas. Yeah. Uh, After making Papa and Boy, we've read some like youth lib stuff from like the anarchist sphere and found there's a lot of like overlaps and stuff that we were kind of like um that came out of us joking around and and stuff that totally overlaps with stuff in in the canon um also on the on the whether to read theory or not thing something that like yeah and again this is this is maybe kind of an anarchist perspective that i sympathize with is i i really think that conversation and dialogue is like the best way for political education to go forward for like 90% of people that like the back and forth questions, um, the, the sort of like, even, even when you're reading something, like you're having a conversation with it in your head, you're either you're highlighting, maybe making notes or even just having your own thoughts. Um, and that's sort of like, uh, dialect, if you will, between the, the, the reader and the text is where the value comes from. And, I, I'm I'm sort of like a conversation, a, a conversation. Uh, what's the word for it? I think conversation is the best. I think conversation is like the root of where knowledge and democracy and all this great stuff can come from, where solidarity, mutual aid comes from. Um, so yeah, I, 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 I reading text is reading text is fine. Reading theory is fine. I find the prescriptive like you must read theory thing to be kind of like tedious and even getting to the point of like cult like sometimes yeah. when people are saying that they they're they're saying that you can't have an opinion because you haven't read this theory so you have to trust them as like a a religious leader to interpret the text for you in the meanwhile until you do this impossible task of reading the 500 page book uh, it's like <laughs> and then if you do read it and disagree with their interpretation it's like well you're you're a noob you've like just read this you have to read all these other things to get in yeah it doesn't sound like you really read that because if you had really read that you would agree <laughs> with me um in my in my mind uh i think about it like like i guess in my mind i think theory can be can be like really helpful but one way that i read it i'll say is that like uh and this is a lot of work and it's very stupid but it's the only way i got through college <laughs> and it's the the way that i got through college with like a really good gpa as a, a sociology major is you you take you fucking have to and and this is such a hassle i gotta tell you you, you read it with a notepad open i read it you know i read it in a book with my uh notes app 
or not notes app, but the, uh, you know, word open on my computer and fucking after every sentence, I, I took what that sentence said and said it in my own words. So I basically rewrote the whole text, <laughs> but like in my words, and that's what got me to understand a lot of the Marxist stuff. And that's been very, my theory, my sort of way to talk about the world when I got out of school was very different in 2015 uh, than it was earlier on where it was like, we need to like, we need to talk about what the concrete experiences of people are in order to figure out how to solve the problems. And I've always been kind of, you know, we, we, we had a zine for a while and that kind of thing. And, and I sort of felt like, well, uh, and our call-in show, I think is like a, is something that I saw as like a tool in helping even the people that, are, that, that kind of gravitate towards us is hearing like, Hey, what's the fucked up stuff about work? You know, like what, what reasons should we have like socialism and, and it like hearing about like, I don't know, uh, people's situations at work, people's situations with healthcare and like hearing it in modern language, talking about problems that we have now is, is exactly what I think needs to be done without worrying about stuff from the past or sounding stupid. I, I've always said that like, I, when you read, so when you read something like the people's history of the United States, the reason that that exists is because they were able to find people who were able to either pass down orally or write their experience in a book or, or in words that people could understand. And I feel like, like, maybe it's the ruling classes uh, a lot of times i think of it as academics like don't want regular people to write their feelings down so they make it seem much harder to do like with grammar rules and stuff like that and like uh i think we lose something when like working class people aren't aren't telling us their experience so that that like we can help them. I don't need somebody else to tell me what a roofer thinks. I would rather just ask a roofer or encourage a roofer to write down their problems. No. Yeah, totally. Like I think uh, one thing that strikes me a lot of the time reading older theory is how much like the internet comment sections it is where they're like, <laughs> there's like beef between Marx and Bakunin and they're just like, uh, going after each other based on these ideas, like, oh, I'm a Marxist, I'm an anarchist. And it's like, oh, yeah, they've really just been having these same arguments. And it's like, I mean, Marx, great, lots of good ideas and stuff, but ultimately, I feel like he's just like an internet reply guy, like coming up with, like, maybe not just, but <laughs> <He's a dude. laughs> at least to some extent. Yeah. And like, you're talking about creating your own theory. I feel like people should feel more. Uh, m motivated or actualized, able to just write their thoughts down, write down systems and ways of thinking about things. Like something on the show we've talked about a lot is just like, yeah, not being stuck in those old uh, systems and like finding new ways to talk about these ideas and ways that resonate with people today. And like, 
yeah, I think I think it's very true what you're saying. And lowering barriers to participation in politics, I think, is a really important thing if you want to have like a society where it's like participatory and that people feel ownership of and they feel like it's a fair system. If we're ever going to have something that approaches that, then the, having like hoops that people need to jump through in order to participate, um, whether that's through like institutional educational institutions um, or it's through like, say, like ha for saying that you have to like read X book before you can talk about X issue, um, that sort of stuff. It's all the same sort of like elitism to me. I, 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 and I really think, that like if you if you talk to um if you talk to people with a sympathetic ear when like that aren't politically active they have a lot of stuff to say and they're not like obviously like reactionary sentiments exist among all stratas of the population but um like there's a lot of interesting stuff and like uh yeah like i don't know what, this conversation is just resonating with me and like how low the the importance of like low barrier participation and communication um, and how that connects to like people's sense of self and like anxiety about whether they can present their ideas or whether they should be allowed or they have the authority to speak on something. Um, like the only thing that really makes, well, that's not true. The th something that makes me angry and there's very few things that make me like really get angry is when people get like credential shamed and there's like someone who's Steven Pinker is lording his, a PhD or whatever over someone else who doesn't have that PhD, like that kind of shit uh, makes me want to throw rocks. I agree. I, I do. I, I do like that. And I do, I do wish it like the thing that I, I, I always wish is that like, you're right. Somebody feeling confident to develop uh, a theory of the systems that we live under or to develop, like maybe it could be, a dumb idea or something what we would consider a dumb idea but it is also like people that people that are working like are the best i it's it's weird i see so much shit on 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 twitter uh uh about people speaking to the working class like this is how we have to do it. You know, uh, there's, we have to be more racist. We have to, we have to do this. We have to do that. There's always this, this like I'm the stuff working that, class whisperer. I figured out they, they love racism. That is the, really so much of what goes on though. I'm it the Caesar Milan weird. of working class racists. Yeah. I mean, just go up there and say like the N word and then start talking to them about socialism and they'll be much more receptive to that. Is what it feels like sometimes when it really is just as easy. You're on fuck. You're fucking online. You know, if you're on fucking Facebook, uh, I mean, you can learn what a lot of regular people think now, uh, much easier than you could in the past, even in like 2010, 2011. I mean, everybody's online. You are seeing what people think, uh, but it's filtered through the lens of like, you know all the news they see being kind of local news headlines and shit like that where you're like okay this this is not fucking helping i i actually find it interesting when you hear like that people are like social media is fucking up the discourse instead of like mainstream media has always fucked up the discourse forever like that that is sort of their role almost is to get people uh, uh, fighting or, or disagreeing with each other. I, I think the more mainstream stuff is a lot uglier than 
some of what happens on social media. I mean, you know, obviously like death threats and, and like racism stuff is probably not as healthy, but it also feels like, you know, you get sort of equivalence to that in mainstream media. You know, you, you get like, if you, if you turn on an AM radio station, you're going to hear basically calls to violence, uh, several times a day by some fucking DJ. I don't know who this is so bad for me. People are going to be so mad, but I don't know who took Rush Limbaugh's spot. Uh, so <laughs> yeah. Who's the I, new I, AM I, conservative go to. Yeah. I don't know either. I'm supposed to be the guy that knows everything about the radio. And then like, which is really a useful thing that, uh, the guy that knows everything about radio in 2022, <laughs> but, um, I, last night I spent on the, on the Colin show last this week, I spent, I don't know, 10 minutes talking to a guy about how I think FM radio could, could become relevant again <laughs> because of just this weird guy that's like loves radio. But, uh, yeah, I, I, uh, uh, so Nick, well, first of all, uh, Nick is sweet. Nick hooked me up with you guys. He said, uh, he thought we would be good together. And so far I think he's right. Nick, you did a good job. You know, all the fighting we did when we were filming the street fight TV show. And this time you're right. And I'm not even going to fight you. These guys are great. Did you guys <laughs> yeah, fight with Nick? Can I ask, did Nick. you guys fight? Yeah. Did you guys fight with Nick at all? Or, or uh, was that just me? <laughs> I would say there was a few, not fights, but I would say sort of like tense moments where we got feedback. We weren't like immediately happy about, but I feel like after like stewing on it briefly, we were usually like, okay, Nick is like pointing out something true here. And I actually feel like he, he had a lot of good notes on the show that made Papa and boy better uh, as we were producing it. There was, there was one time where I, there was only one time that there was any sort of like uh, that I was ever hostile towards Nick. And it was one time he asked if I could reanimate something. And I was like, there's no fucking way I'm reanimating that. Man. We don't, we don't talk about that happening again. You know how long I worked on this animation. <laughs> it's perfect. How it is. <laughs> oh God. I got to tell you guys, uh, uh, when we were filming the TV show, uh, I, at one point stood up, got out of a chair, basically threw his mic pack down walked outside and he had to send brett outside to fucking tell me to cut to get me to come back in and film the rest of the show i i you know everybody should feel bad for nick because he really <laughs> he he got like nick got the last sort of a uh brett and brian team up situation and it was us being mean to him and and it was like sort of the show was already kind of we weren't talking as much and and stuff like that but me and him were just like man it's really nice to be mean to somebody together actually <laughs> so this is really working out for us yeah final bonding moment uh <laughs> before, the, before the breakup <laughs> yeah. before the breakup there was the period where we were mean to nick where everything seemed better <laughs> i almost quit like five fucking times because uh i'm a baby uh did not want to wear shirts without logos on them at the time he he wanted us to wear shirts without logos on them uh and i didn't want to do it and i just fucking was such an asshole about it but one of the reasons I was an asshole is because they're in studio bits where we're just talking. Uh, he had me wear the same clothes in every single one of them. And I was melting down thinking of people saying, Brian and Brett wear the same clothes every day. 
because every episode is going to have us in these same clothes because they were the only clothes we had that didn't have logos on them. <laughs> but we got into a lot of fights with Nick. But the show's done, and and uh, nothing's getting changed now. So me and Nick are, 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 are getting along well. I mean, I think before he left Columbus, I was sort of, uh, uh, you know, I said, hey, man, you know, it's all good. I, I think the difference between you know, us and, and you guys with Nick is that he went on tour with us for like three years. And, uh, I think we just felt more comfortable being mean to him really. You know how it is when you feel more comfortable being mean to a guy when, when, uh, you know, him a little bit better. Yeah. But definitely. I think <laughs> our I relationships have been mostly emails and, uh, yeah. Video calls. chats and yeah. Yeah. God, he, uh, he's, he sat in a goddamn car with me for hours and hours and hours on the road and and also you know got us into he got us kicked out of a hotel one time we what, <laughs> what like what did he do so my sister worked for marriott and we were able to use her hotel discount to pay for hotels when we went on tour and it's a big i mean the discount that hotel workers get is fucking incredible it's like you can stay nice. at like a courtyard marriott for like $35 a night. So it wow. made it made touring incredibly easy because it's just like, you know, uh, we use the hotel discount, we get into town, the lodging costs almost nothing. And then we'll make the money on the shows because we didn't have to pay for the hotel rooms that most people that tour have to pay for. And uh, we got to the hotel and I was a little bit uh, surly at the counter because I just sometimes can get surly. I had just driven to New York, just driven in New York for the first time in my life. And, you know, I was just a little bit. So I, I got the room. We checked into the room. And then the next that night. OK, so this part's my fault. I clogged the toilet really bad in the room. <laughs> and uh, the maintenance guy came up with a really long uh thing i wasn't there for this but a really long like thing where he was like unclogging the toilet i, I like used a snake. to do that at work yeah me too <laughs> i was a hotel maintenance person before <laughs> the podcast uh, well, got big enough guys they need better toilets in the hotels it's just people are traveling <laughs> when they stay in a hotel you can't have a low flow toilet for people that are traveling you know, yeah. because it's just there's big situations can happen. Everything yeah, is not true. out of whack. I got to say, when you're working maintenance, the days you got to pull out that toilet snake are dark days. <laughs> uh, it has to be the worst day. So the guy pulled it out and Brett was in the room at the time. And he was trying to get like a video of the guy unclogging the toilet. Not the guy necessarily, <laughs> but the snake sticking out of the door where he's in there like shoving the snake down. <laughs> Brett tried to get a picture and the guy just peeked around the corner and saw him getting the picture and was kind of like, no. So the next day, the next night, we went out and partied with everybody, with the Chapo guys and, and, and all those people. And uh, me and Nick, because I'm, I'm just not like super social guy, we're like, let's go back to the hotel. Nick was only 19, so he couldn't go to the bar. We couldn't get him into the bar. So me and Nick went back to the hotel and we were trashed. And uh, the people were giving us nasty looks because of how trashed we were when we got in. And then the next morning, that motherfucker was in the room grinding up weed and 
uh, also vaping weed at the same time. It's just the <laughs> most weed smell anybody's ever smelled. Halfway down the fucking hall. Me and Brett aren't even there. I'm actually downstairs uh, clogging the toilet at the time. And uh, again, and uh, they call us. Yeah, I am. A, thank you. We need more maintenance workers. <laughs> this guy's <laughs> clogging all the toilets. No, you go downstairs. They have stronger toilets, though, than in the room. It's, oh, it's, yeah. Little travel. Yeah, for you gotta go to the master toilet to really get you the do. work done. <laughs> you do. So anyway, uh, the housekeeper knocks on the fucking door and he's like, "Come in!" And he's got a big fucking <laughs> pile of weed <laughs> on the fucking table. And it's like, why did you tell her to come in? So she came in. And we got fucking kicked out of the hotel. And so Brett and Will went, or Brett and uh, Nick went and stayed with Will Meneker. And uh, I went and stayed with some people we knew because I was afraid I got my sister fired and I was having a total meltdown, but we had another live show to do. So it was a very wild trip, but we did get kicked out of the hotel and I will always blame Nick for that, for saying, yeah, every time I've smoked weed in a hotel room, it's either out the window, if there is a window or in the bathroom, blowing it directly into the fan that's on. You don't just let the smell waft everywhere like that's actually i got a papa and boy tip my dad is someone who like his vietnam was when they banned smoking indoors um and he he brings it up all the time to me uh i know the ins and outs of his opinions on smoking indoors so he smokes in hotels and uh, his trick to smoke in non-smoking rooms is to bring a toaster (laughs) sorry i could bring a toaster and burn toast right before you leave the room the smell of burnt toast overwhelms the smell of the cigarette smoke. And then you say to the staff, oh, we burned some toast. He's never been caught once. He's been doing it for decades. So you really? can take that to the bank. That's 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 truly that's, the craziest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> that's a that's a real Papa and Boy shit. If, if you pitch that to me, I would be like, that does not work. Like cigarette smoke will it. overpower the burnt Look, toast. I don't trust my dad on everything. I'm not going to ask him no, to vote for mayor. If you're saying he's never but been caught, I believe you. He's I, never been caught. If he was caught, he'd tell me. He'd tell me five or six times. I mean, that's crazy because, you know, I mean, the the money it could cost them if they do catch him. I mean, that's a real brave move, I think, on your dad's part, because don't they charge like 800 bucks or some shit if you uh, smoke in the room? My sister, when she worked at the hotel, she worked at a rich person hotel and uh, uh, in town, like the most expensive hotel in town or whatever. And guys would come in there and fucking get. I, I mean, I remember she told me a story about a rich guy coming in there, staying there for like a week. They get up in the room and there's actual shit all over the walls and the hotel <laughs> room and the bed. And she's like, yeah, they charged him a huge cleaning fee. And I think they do that. If you get caught smoking in a room, you get you get charged like this huge. I, th- I think it's 250 fee. bucks at the hotel I worked for. You, We would like bring in this ozone machine that uh, kind of desmells the room. If you can smell cigarette smoke in there. Um. Yeah, but you de- definitely they would charge people. I think, like, dude, my da- I don't want to and- tell people to do what my dad does. My dad does a lot of has a lot of advice that I wouldn't pass on. On <laughs> sounds on the show. very good. He sounds but, like a good street fight <laughs> advice guy. He, like he also doesn't. He doesn't put a credit card on file. I don't think. I think that's part of his whole system. Is he finds a place he doesn't need to put the credit card on file. He oh, pays in I cash. Yeah. I've talked about this on the show, guys. I only, okay, this is, this makes people so mad every time I say it. I only stay in four star or above hotels. I don't, 
I will never stay in a anything. I sometimes I look at a three point five star hotel and I'm like, doesn't seem like it'll work for me. I don't <laughs> like the idea of it. You know, I, I just I cannot bear the thought of not having like complimentary waters when I get in the room <laughs> or whatever it is. I don't even know what a four star hotel is, but I can't. And they always make you have a credit card on file. But if yeah, you, there's if a certain level of cleanliness and just like I, like yeah, I I understand that. Yeah, people always fucking are like, you're not an anarchist. And I'm like, I guess not. Because if I got to stay in crappy hotels to be an anarchist, then I, I don't want to be one. Then I've well, decided. Yeah. If you're imagining your future anarchist utopia is going to have like dirty, gross rooms that everyone has to stay in. And it's like, I don't know. That's not my that's not my preferred vision for a better society. I, like, I try not to use this to defend things too often. But I mean, technically speaking, like, anarchism is like an ethical framework for imagining the redistribution of society it's not like a pledge to always meet everyone's idea of anarchist in all situations forever for your yeah. entire life no matter the context if it is that latter thing then why would anyone ever want to follow the ethical frameworks that it like like anarchism is a, it, the the i believe the Ethical and political frameworks of social anarchism are some of the best ideas I've ever read in the world. Some of the theories I've read that most resonated with me. But I don't think we should be like looking over each other's shoulder to make sure that the star count on our hotel is low enough. That's that's a bit odd. I think it's something with me. It's like it's the because because of what Street Fight was when it started. A lot of the earliest listeners were like the real hardcore. Because we didn't have the Chapo guys hadn't said, you know, uh, listen to this show yet. So our listeners were all like the the re, the anarchists that like crust punks and and like people like that. And like they used to get like a little mad at me. I I talked once about how I wear uh, Iron Rangers boots, and uh, they're like two hundred dollar, two seventy five, two hundred seventy four, probably three hundred dollar boots now. And a guy got really mad at me for that. And I was like, well, they look real good, and I like them. And uh, I always got the impression I got the impression very early on that like. For you to be anarchist to certain people, you have to live in squalor. Like that, it like part of being an anarchist is like denying yourself luxury, which is something that like I just I can't go with. I I think you know I would I, I my vision of anarchism isn't like this unrealistic idea of what luxury is but like it's not the ritz hotel for every single person that has ever lived but it is also not like being smelly and like staying in staying in like flop houses or like punk rock houses or or whatever that is like and and like i think there is like a balance between whatever luxury space or whatever luxury communism is and and anarchism that we could meet in the middle and everybody could live a decent life you know yeah i always came at anarchism from a more luxury socialist luxury communist perspective and more recently i've kind of like tempered that a bit uh to be like you know maybe not like luxury luxury but like you mentioned free bottled water uh and i feel like you know maybe we'll deal with the plastic and think of better ways to do that but like having free water available 
uh, that isn't like tap water that tastes weird. It's kind of like a like I feel like that could be made that luxury, quote unquote, could be made available to everyone really easily if there wasn't capitalism in the way, uh, like saying you have to charge for water for people. Uh, <laughs> Does, um, one of the things that we've really developed a bit or like synthesized from different perspectives on our show over the years, we have this 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 uh we call it library socialism our theory we created yeah, our own our theory. personal theory yeah um it's based well, on i'm interested people. i'm extremely because that's something nick told me about and he said i needed to have you guys talk about it. and i did look in i i did see it on the site and a few people asked me questions about uh library socialism yeah, and like the dildo uh, i am very question curious and, yeah, yeah is there dildos <laughs> Is there well, a dildo get, library? Let's, let's get to this and okay. we'll, we'll put a pin we'll, in we'll that get one. Ba- yeah, we'll get back to it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the main point. So, you know, you know how neoliberalism turns the entire world into a marketplace of private property. We propose a counter hegemony, a counter strategy that is to turn the entire world into a lending library. Um, and what this does, in effect, is it can create something that both fits within the ecological limits of the planet and provides abundance for all. Because if you're sharing something rather than owning it, putting it in storage, et cetera, having to make one speedboat for each person, whoever wants to ride a speedboat around, even though they don't ride it every day, unless they're some sort of speedboat speedboat <laughs> maniac and all the power to them, um, the, by, by distributing goods in uh, what's called a, a usufructian way, which is uh, the use and fruit of property, not the right to destroy it, um, you can create a society that, um, you know, in the words of Buckminster Fuller, is provides a higher standard of living to everyone than has ever been achieved in human history for a lower ecological cost. Yeah, if everyone's sharing power tools in the neighborhood, you don't need to produce as many power tools. So you're saving on like raw materials and like the ecological impacts of construction. You can also make power tools that last as long as possible rather than like, oh, I only use it once a year. So I'm going to buy these cheapo ones at Home Depot that will probably break down after a few years uh like it it lessens the ecological impact of everything uh to share the resources amongst each other and like when you talk about commonly held resources in communism uh, a lot of people are like what would that even look like but we have a really great example of it in the current society which is like the book lending library we know how we all share books together. Um, and obviously if you're doing that with like sofas or like a computer, it wouldn't have like a three week due date. You can check out furniture for as long as you're living in the city or whatever. And then it gets returned. It can be refurbished by the people working within the system and then lent out again. Uh, you know, when you have something that's still good, but you want to get rid of it and you don't want to throw it away and you yeah. don't want to go through the work of selling it and talking to someone, in our utopia, you'd be able to just bring it back and then they'd repair the little holes in the couch and then they'd redistribute it to someone who needs a couch. And then we wouldn't produce more couches than we needed. We'd try to produce around as many couches as we needed. Uh, and as a result, all these things together, you know, this is, this is like a social, ecological, economic engine of an alternative system to neoliberal capitalism, I think. Um, and around that, we also... We thread in all of our utopian ideas into this framework. We use that as our core idea, and we thread all of the the fun ideas we have for how a society could be much better around that nucleus of building a library society, a library economy. Um, so that's like our that's our in house in house theory. It takes some influence from 
um, social yeah. ecology, Murray Bookchin. Yeah, uh, definitely. Um, also, Inventing the Future was a book of theory I read that was really influential to my thought around that time. Um, it's a Marxist book. Very critical of anarchism, I think unfairly critical, but the other chapters hold up. <laughs> I It's interesting. Um, so there were two early, very early street fight bits uh, that we did. Uh, one was, uh, uh, and I don't, I don't think anybody listening to this is ever going to remember this, but years and years ago, I, I think we were complaining about, you know, making too much of everything. And, and one of the thoughts we had was in, like the same way they have, like, basically there are silos in town where you bring your own fucking thing you bring your own container and you get your cereal from there <laughs> so there's not like a whole row of cereal boxes constantly at the store i guess and we called those cereal silos but the thing that i wanted to <laughs> which and also had that idea for bikes too just and you know and this this technology has already existed forever uh, use the cart corrals at the grocery store and just have bike corrals around town. Instead, they let these capitalist these companies put these bikes in town that you have to, you know, scan your credit card to use and pay for. Like yeah, it's in, sponsored in, by a telecom company in big letters. <laughs> at least yeah. that's what it is here. <laughs> it's Lyft here. It's sponsored by Lyft here. Ours is um, like Shaw Internet bikes. <laughs> Yes, ours is ours is uh, uh, Kogo bites, Co Kogo Columbus go, but yeah, they 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 call it. Uh, uh, it is a lift thing. Lift will say like, you know, ride a bike, do this, do that, and uh, we have these new things here because it's college town. Columbus is, you know, one of the biggest. Uh, Ohio State's one of the biggest campuses in the country. We have this thing now where they have these like sort of bus stops, but they're not for buses; they're for lift, and apparently, like. It's exactly like a bus, like a, a Lyft driver drives by, they pick up some people, they take them home. And it's like, that is what buses are for, motherfucker. Just make a bus. <laughs> Have a public Fuck. transport system that works. Yeah, those bike corrals, the capitalist versions of it, or like all that sharing economy stuff is like capitalists realizing the basis of library socialism that like sharing things increases efficiency, but them using it to their own benefit to make profit for rich capital owners rather than uh, cr actually creating an abundance for people that's available. At, yeah. The cart corral they example. <laughs> I'm sorry. They fuck it up too. It is yeah. the oh, thing is like, they, they like the, the scooters, you guys have scooters where you're at. No, not in Vancouver. No, no, we scooters don't. Yet. I've heard about so, them though. The fucking school. You're in Vancouver. Yeah. Holy shit! I will be there. So uh, we gotta hang out. I'm gonna be hanging out there a lot. My uh, Vancouver, uh, BC. Yeah, two of my. Yeah, you're not in Vancouver, cool. British Columbia. We yeah. are in BC. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Just ah, making sure you not, didn't not mean Washington. Washington. Yeah, it's two misunderstanding two guys. Before. Two guys that I work with more than anybody are John Cullen, who is a comic out of Vancouver. We do the POD cast together. And Chris James, who is uh, another comic out of uh, Vancouver that does not even a show for uh, uh, Means, too. Uh, they're two guys I work with more than anybody. And uh, they live there. So I'm going to start traveling there to to work when some money's freed up in the street fight thing, you know, cause we pay a severance obviously. And it would be unfair for me to take and but whatever that shit doesn't matter. But Vancouver, I'm going to be there in cool. yeah, at least definitely. May. 
link up. But the the card corral thing is the 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 uh, uh, the idea of it is essentially the same as those stupid fucking scooters, but there's a place for them to go because my issue with the scooters is not that the scooters exist. I hate that they can't geofence them off the sidewalk because it's illegal to ride them on the sidewalk here, but people do it anyway. Uh, but you know, I don't know how technology happens and, uh, I hate that they can just like get off of them and leave them where they're at and just walk away. And, uh, so the bike corral idea was an idea that I had where it's like, well, you take the bike, you ride it to the next corral and you're done. And, and like, it can even be a place for people with old bikes that they want to get rid of to just dispose of their fucking bike. Cause somebody else could use it. And like, um, that idea was always in our head, but then, you know, over the years I had started to think about like, I mean, what other things could we have a library for? And the one thing I thought of was because I, so exotic cars is basically the thing I thought of <laughs> like Lamborghinis and shit like that. Like there are these cars that probably the people who would want to drive them most like NASCAR fans and, and people like that would really want to drive a Ferrari. There are these cars that those people will never touch. They will drive a fucking, they will drive a truck and nobody deserves to have a $500,000 car. So we always, had this idea in our head of like the the exotic car library in town where people do get luxury but it's not like we're making a bunch of new things so that they can have like the same luxuries as people and and i think your system this library socialism system is the way to fucking go because like everybody it it honestly feels like everybody can have everything you know yeah, we one of the phrases that come has come to mind talking about over the years is like richer than rich. Like especially when you start opening up the information um economy, like letting people share information about like um, developing patents and like having imagining having a a pirate bay Netflix combo, like the Netflix of everything. Um you're giving people in that society people would have more access even even rich people would have more access to more things in that society than they do now. Um, the, the thing I wanted to say before about the cart corral is it made me think, imagine if when you went to the store to use a cart, you had to like buy a cart from a cart salesman. And then when you went back to the parking lot, emptied your groceries, you would then sell it to the cart <laughs> salesman. At a, that's that's kind of like what our system works like. Kind of like yeah, Aldi but- a little bit. <laughs> But not really, because you're not really paying for the car. Uh, do you guys have Aldi there? Uh, no. Do they just do like the coin? Yeah, you put cart a quarter thing? in. Yeah, yeah. You put we a quarter have a in, and then when you put that. it when you put it back, you get the quarter back, which is like fine. I don't think you're allowed to just take the cart. Like I think if you're going to put the quarter in, you should be allowed to take the cart <laughs> if you want. <laughs> I put my quarter in there, motherfucker. I just won't get my deposit back. I'm fine. <laughs> but- it makes sense to me, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I feel like you really could access everything through library. Like, we've been thinking about this, and, like, I, I, I struggle to think of anything that doesn't fit in this model. I think the major complication people come up with is, uh, well, what about consumables? Like, obviously, you're not going to return your food or your drugs or whatever to the library. Um, but Except through the bathroom. 
Yeah, which in a sense would be maybe used for fertilizer. I think <laughs> I think when you start thinking about things, and this touches on the sex toy model too, when you start thinking about everything in a more circular economy way, like cradle to cradle design, how do we make sure that once an item is finished being used, if it can't be repaired, it can be broken down into useful items again, because putting things in landfills and creating this stuff we call trash, which is really just a catch-all for everything we've produced that we don't want to deal with anymore. Uh, but if you think about production in a more holistic sense, you can design everything so that whatever the end product of it is, even if you can't just return it again the same way that like, like a, a sofa, you can just return the sofa back when you're done using it. Uh, of, like consumables don't work that way, but whatever the end product is, we can design systems to reincorporate those into something useful again in the future. So it's like a sort of bigger picture returning everything to the library in a sense. I want to, I want to lift the veil on trash here. I want to drop a pill, you know, like when people become pilled on something, trash, yeah. trash isn't real. The idea that we have of trash is built on this sort of baby-like lack of object permanence. We think that when the subway wrapper, the subway, <laughs> the, the pile of, of garbage goes in the, in the garbage, that it goes this place that's away. Um, but you can visit it, and there's this incredible and growing pile of a mixture between diapers, broken things, and still good things that just grows year after year and will grow year after year forever. And the, the, the risk is if we don't learn to recycle our dildos if we don't learn to reintegrate used what we're going to build one dildo per person and when they die we throw it out because we're too icked out to the idea of washing it off come on let's grow up a society like that you're going to have these incredible piles of dildos in the country eventually you know imagine a thousand years down the road <laughs> many generations of dildos all piled up because we're just too gross to wipe them off well i mean i think glass dildos easily sterilizable um, if you're more grossed out about like, if you want like a softer, like silicone dildo, you can, uh, I think we have to find ways to like deal with plastic and like break plastic down into something that can be made into plastic again. I don't know if that's through like mushroom stuff I've heard about. I don't know how useful or true that is. We'll leave that to the eggheads. Yeah. They'll figure out what we do with plastic, but, uh, we it's figure funny. out something to do with it and recycle it reuse it it's funny that i agree with you on the trash thing where it's like yeah there is no like the trash has to go somewhere like when you have a tv and you have to i, I so i had this tv i bought in like 2003 that was enormous it's one of those um it was like a sony trinitron that i don't know how much it, it had to weigh 300 pounds i'm almost positive it did and i'm a, a very lazy man and um, I didn't want to carry it upstairs. I didn't know what to do with it. And it just sat in my basement for almost two decades. It sat down there <laughs> with two washers and dryer sets down there that I had that had broken. And I had to buy a new washer and dryer. And I just fucking like had these two broken ones in the basement that I couldn't fix. Um, one day, my wife is like, hey. I'm going to get, I was on Craigslist and I saw this guy that said he'll pick up your old washer and dryers and fix them. And those guys are great. I mean, that kind of thing. I, I have talked about this before. I just, I'm 43 and I just bought my first 
new washer and dryer in my entire life. Uh, I bought used washers and dryers for years. They're very cheap. The guys can just fix them, put them back together and sell you for like almost nothing because the parts cost nothing. It's just a simple machine. And like the guy came to take my other two washing machines, which means he's going to make more money because he's going to take those and turn them into money for him. And then he was like, yeah, I'll take that TV too. And he took the TV on his own. Like they just took all the trash out of my basement. And for me, that trash is all fucking gone. And it's somewhere. I don't know where the fuck it went, but like it felt better to put it in the hands of a guy who thought maybe I'll use this. Maybe I'll fix this and use it. Then it did to kind of, I mean, the way that we get rid of our trash, at least here, is we we sort of put it outside by the trash can, and if it's too big for the trash men to pick up, we just hope somebody drives by and sees it and is like, oh, I'd like that. <laughs> I'd like to have that. And Very hopefully nice. it doesn't rain before that happens. And exactly. It's, just a, it's pure will of God kind of shit. After a day of rain, dude, you will walk around in the spring and summer, sometimes in the winter, but you will walk around after a day of rain and see like couches on the curb with a wet sign that says free. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, that's not, or, or, or I, I take, I walk a lot every day. And to the other day, I'm, you know, I'm walking up a road that I walk up all the time. There's just a fucking mattress on the, in, on the sidewalk. There's a mattress there. And it's because nobody thinks to like put the mattress in the ozone machine and uh, from the hotel and fix it and it's give it to somebody that needs a fucking new mattress. It just we, we don't we have so much trash now that and everything is disposable that we don't fucking have any idea what to do with mo with like all of it, except for what we call our recycling, which is definitely not getting recycled when we, when, when they pick it up. Yeah. A lot of the time it's uh, yeah. That, that's the whole thing with library socialism. We want to like institutionalize the entire society to be a place where if your TV breaks or your washing machine breaks, like there's always a place to return it to where, you know, some people are going to fix it and use it for something again. And it's not just going to the dump. Yeah, that kind of responsibility to like make sure that things are properly disposed of. It's such a big responsibility. I think we just want to take it off of people and onto institutions, structures yeah. that are built to be professional. Just make sure that everything is used in its maximum way. Every part of the trash is used. Things are separated to compost or not and et cetera. Effectively, we don't have this big stinky pile of diapers and still working electronics getting rained on. Um, like, it, the system and all these weird things like you never think about I, I hope this is one of the things that people connect to library socialism is you you go around your house you peek in the closet and you see all the stuff you're embarrassed of from 2014 that you just need to figure out something to do with someday and you don't exactly have a plan but it's just like it tears at you inside you know that it's some sort of failure um <laughs> and in library socialism we abolish that feeling there is no such thing as looking in your closet and being embarrassed that you got something from it for, as a gift that you didn't like and you're too embarrassed to pass it on to someone else. You're too embarrassed to get rid of it. You also know throwing it out is wrong. So it's just sitting there for 10 years. That's got to go. That's capitalism in a nutshell. Yeah. And passing it on even is sort of like people are kind of embarrassed like when the holiday season comes around and, and you hear 
and, and like mainstream stuff, you hear people talk about shit regifting being like this sort of evil thing. Did you not commission this from raw materials for me? <laughs> yeah. Did you not get them to mine anything? What the fuck's wrong with you? <laughs> it, it is like the uh, regifting and like uh, uh, all that stuff is considered like this like taboo thing so like somebody gave me some fucking bullshit that i didn't want that they <laughs> found it fucking coals why can't i give that to somebody I, I remember one year somebody gave me and i haven't drank since i fucking i don't drink i'm not a drinker um they gave me a a a bank uh like a piggy bank and inside it looked like a Guinness can and inside it, there were pajama pants that had the Guinness <laughs> logo all over them. That's a thoughtful was, gift. Yeah. I saw it and I was like, why is this for me? Like, what? Like, <laughs> how is this gift for me? But my father-in-law fucking loves Guinness and he thinks it's the greatest shit in the world. And I didn't, I, I just kept the goddamn I kept the goddamn Guinness pants for years until I just said, just take them to Goodwill. Like, I don't need those fucking things at all. When instead I could have given it to him as a gift and he'd be like, oh, wow, these, this, this trash is like actually good. I like this. And, uh, but I would have felt too guilty doing it. I just always like, it, it is like the thing of the, the other thing is like, things have to be pristine. I, I know, uh, uh, I go on StockX a lot of times to buy clothes, which is uh, stupid because they're way more expensive there. But uh, they have a lot of stuff I like that you can't just buy in a store. But I collect Legos now. Uh, I play Legos. I don't collect them. I actually. <laughs> yeah. And I've, I've been uh, having my wife bag them up and then I'm selling them on Twitter to fucking get rid of them. And. Uh, so I basically, this is in the spirit of what you guys are talking about. I, I, a lot of times will buy Lego sets that I don't have any interest in. I bought a NASA one that was the space shuttle with the Hubble telescope. I don't give a fucking shit about space. And, uh, but I knew <laughs> that I could, I would get the joy of putting something together and then I could sell it and have the money. And then I decided, well, Every time kids come over, you know, they look at all my Legos, which makes me feel, I'm a 43 year old dad of an 18 year old, <laughs> but the kids all come over and they're like, show, show me the new Legos. So I started giving them, bagging them up and giving them the new Legos too. And it's like, they just keep fucking making Legos. And if I took these and bat, if I took these and bagged these up and gave them for Christmas presents, that would be seen as like a fail as, as me being cheap. And and like right. evil to do that. I if I want to give people Legos, I have to go buy the fucking Legos. You know. Yeah, it's pretty ridiculous. Yeah, your Guinness can Guinness shorts uh, Guinness piggy bank story reminded me of one of the laws of library science, which yeah, is that, that too. yeah, <laughs> there's a book for every reader and a reader for every book. And part of library science is about connecting the person who wants to read the book to the book. And that's what librarians do and are there for. That's why and the like, library has so much beautiful variation is to make sure that everyone who comes in is able to be connected to their exact right book, according to the laws of library science. And this 
Yeah, so, your stepdad, uh, I think your or dad, father-in-law, you said? I can't remember yeah. now. Yeah. Uh, w- it would have been the perfect reader for this book of the piggy bank Guinness can, but like the capitalism getting in the way of making that connection. Yeah, and this weird cultural imposition that, that we shouldn't connect the things that people want to them because we have this cultural ritual of gift giving uh, where you pretend you have to always pretend that you like something because people spend their hard earned money on it. Um, and it's like a non-refundable transaction. Um, <laughs> yeah. I my mean, mom you- always gives me underwear that I don't wear because it's just not like the cut or style that I like, but I always like have it. I'm like, Oh, where should I give this underwear to away this time? And I just have a bunch of it that I, I've never worn like I, good underwear. <laughs> when I was a kid, my mom, this, this haunts the, this 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 memory haunts me. This is a real traumatic. <laughs> this it's not it's not actually traumatic. It used to really bother me when I was a kid. My mother, God bless her, sweet sweet lady, she gave me a ancient Egypt playset. Uh, it was like a learning playset, and I must have been maybe eight, nine, ten, something like that. And I remember just staring at it on the counter and just feeling this guilt, this deep guilt that I couldn't appreciate what my mom gave me that I hated this stupid playset. I didn't want to learn about ancient Egypt, but I also knew that it meant something to her that she shared it with me. She wanted me to learn about Egypt and that feeling, Oh man, I can almost feel it now. When I was, when I was 11 or 12, I was like, I was like, I was eaten alive by this because she meant so well. She thought I would like the ancient Egypt learning playset, But when I looked inward, I didn't. Yeah. That is so, uh, I mean, I love the, uh, uh, I love the idea of, I'm actually glad we talked about this because the other option that I think people would really love would have been us listening to more Jim Brewer audio, uh, and goofing on that. So we're definitely not going to do that this week, but like, um, do you guys, so like one of the dreams I had when I got into this was sort of a a what i was calling a community garage where uh because the thing that hurts people in the working class specifically and the people who uh uh the thing that hurts people in the working class the most is like a car that that breaks down and uh uh it's impossible to get fixed you know when i was at my brokest in my whole life uh, what I had a car that broke down over and over again. So I would start to get ahead on my bills or maybe not ahead on my bills, but I would start handling my bills and be in a comfortable spot. Goddamn car would break down. It would cost $1,100 to fix it. And then, you know, uh, I'm broke again and I'm struggling yeah. and it would just over and over again, that would happen. And I always thought this idea of a garage that like mechanics could hang out at that have all the tools and then have access to the parts or, or we have access to the parts or some sort of budget for parts that like people could rotate in and fix, fix cars. Because I think like that's another cars are people hate cars that they even exist because there's too many of them, but we're also like just throwing those away now too. The damn thing breaks down. It costs a thousand dollars to fix it. Just go to the car dealership and fucking, uh, get get a car loan for like fucking a thousand dollars a month because you're paying off the other car before that 
and uh, all that. And I always, I, I would really love to have a place where when your car breaks down, you don't lose your fucking job. And, and the only way I could, my, the failure of, of sort of my, my imagination wasn't, uh, wasn't car libraries. Uh, yeah, wasn't mass transit. It wasn't like oh, mass yeah, transit, yeah. which is the solution to this sort of thing. But like, you don't think about that because it's been so sort of it's bad. Like mass transit is bad in a lot of places on purpose, so you don't think about that. And uh, push you uh, into the lifts. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely, yes. And you can't. You honestly, you can't drive a lift. Like you can't take lifts every day to work. It doesn't fucking work. It 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 takes up the first like three hours, like depending yeah. on where you're at. If you're not walking distance, it basically takes up the first three hours of your uh, uh, day, you know. So, uh, or, or of what you worked for. So, I don't yeah, know. I, th I, I was the car I think, thing. Yeah, car garages and like maker spaces in general, and like encouraging both people to like learn about how to make repairs to their own items uh and also like making instruction and workshops and like uh the the a social activity of repairing and having respect for items rather than this like trash ideology of just throwing things out when they become inconvenient for you uh, i think is a big yeah part of what you would want to have in a system like this that's like taking care of items uh I think I think it's a great idea. Yeah, yeah it makes it's, I, in in transitioning like into building a more uh, a better society. I feel like something you, this is the type of thing that can be set up as a way to to make an inroad. Um, you know, like there's a there's a lot of varieties of like tool libraries and stuff like that. But setting up there's there's a, a local group. I think they're called Our Community Bikes. They're like a nonprofit that repairs people's bikes and helps people get set up on bikes for transportation needs and stuff. Um, like these, these are like a, there's like subscription tool libraries, I think also, uh, in a lot of places there is here in town. These are like sort of, I see them as like first steps or footholds towards library socialism if they're done right. Um, and I think in particular, the a distinction that I want to make about my little idea about what library socialism is, is like doing these things are component parts of library socialism, but it's not truly library socialist unless these things are sort of done in the name of a revolutionary social transition to a world mediated by libraries. So we can use these library dynamics in non-library socialist ways, like by running a streaming service or running a for-profit tool library or having shared bikes in town or whatever. It's, it's kind of library socialist in a way, but it's not it's 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 not an advancement of library socialism unless it's part of a political pro program to reorganize society. And I just want to make that little distinction because um, I don't want to sound too reformist on this revolutionary vision of reorganizing society. We can make footholds, uh, and I really strongly support making footholds. Uh, I think like having a community garage uh, or a tool library that's like volunteer run and is um, you know helping people who need help to you know, working class people, low income people to access tools or get their car fixed. Um, those are the types of things you can do for people that can build a real strong connection between uh, in, in communities and affinity for political ideologies. Um, so yeah, it's like an opportunity to advance a revolutionary transitionary politics. Um, yeah. I mean, it I, I, I also like be a bar matters. 
the garage could be like a bartering system too where like you know somebody who 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 knows how to do something can go in and have a like you know they can trade services with a mechanic that there is a place i i i just i bring this up because you know uh i drove this really shitty car for uh, so I, I worked at the cable company they would not let me bring my van home which is fucking nuts I drive around in a van all day but you're not allowed to take it home uh so i'd have i'd have my car and um so you drove so, to the van to drive around all day and then you drove home from the van and nobody exactly. touches the van while you're while nope. you're away yeah <laughs> no ridiculous nope. and uh so i i uh uh my wife and i had two cars one of them had a fucked up muffler and was really loud and shitty and had to have antifreeze put in it every every day or every every time you drove basically and uh the the other car uh, a lug nut fell off of the like somehow fell off the other one of the tires so it was kind of wobbly and i didn't want to drive it on the freeway because i didn't want the wheel to fall off on the freeway and uh so i had to drive the car from where i live in the downtown into the suburbs exurbs really uh, not on the freeway i had to like you use back roads and shit and leave leave a very like hours early and shit like that and uh so i i got paid after this happened and i went to the mechanic and they were like well we're gonna have to uh we're gonna have to uh drill the screw out uh or drill the piece out so that we can get and that's gonna cost like two grand or some shit and i was like fuck i will never have two thousand dollars in my whole life uh that is just an amount of money that i will never see um and uh so i took it and, and i did this for months and months i'm driving this way uh, a guy i knew that owned a tow truck that ended up quitting and starting his own tow truck company because he owned a tow truck was like hey my dad works on cars and he said he would look at it for you just pay him like 40 bucks or something like that and get the parts and i was like all right uh took it into the took it to the place where the guy worked very funny place it, it is the place in town where people store their like rolls royces and shit uh so i had to like go in basically the back door in my 2000 like i had to wait <laughs> until there were nobody because they didn't want to see a nissan 200 sx they didn't want their rich clients to see a nissan 200 98 <laughs> oh, i couldn't possibly that my eyes have been oh, defiled there goes it. the neighborhood <laughs> yeah. they were it was a very specific request like can you bring it in at 9 p.m so that none of our customers <laughs> see that 98 nissan 200 sx and i was like yeah fine whatever we they went come to like work on it with their collars popped to hide their faces <laughs> <laughs> it, the dude fixed it in i'm serious uh uh it cost 48 dollars because the part cost eight bucks and uh he fixed it in 10 minutes and uh i just left and, and it was like a two thousand dollar fix at at the place and i'm not blaming the like mechanic there is this like archaic maybe not archaic is the wrong word, but there is like this manual that mechanics have had to create in capitalism where labor hours cost this certain amount of money and there isn't a way to like sort of work around that. That is just, that is just what it costs. And I'm not saying that people shouldn't get paid what they're worth. I'm just saying that like, it, it, it does prevent, like it feels like the companies 
that hire these mechanics could just pay the mechanics more. There's always cars at the mechanic shop and uh, they can help people or they could, they, if they want to be in business in the city, maybe they could just be like, you have to help a certain amount of people that don't meet a, a level like that, that like, if you want to work in a community, it's the same way that it works with smoking bans. Where it's like, if you want to be in business here, you can't let people smoke in your place. That is like the the thing that they talk about. Well, if you want to be in business here, you have to fix a certain amount of indigent people's cars. And that's like, even just seems like it, they call it indigent here. I'm sorry if that's bad. It, it's uh, at the... Uh, uh, at the dispensary I go to, they give a 25% indigent person uh, discount. And I just, that word just hit in my mind. But that you have to fix a certain amount of people's cars that can't afford to get their cars fixed if you want to be in business in the city. Even that is like such a positive step towards like helping people not have their, but you know, we talk so much about people uh, not having their life destroyed when they get sick. But we could also be talking about you know, people not having, you know, losing their job when they get sick, not especially with like pandemics and stuff like that happening. We could be talking a lot more about helping people that need it without like extending them credit. Uh, yeah, the, that, that idea of like requiring every garage to do some, I, it's really, I, I like it as like a, a, something that could be implemented through policy, like within the current system, fairly easily and i say easily not like the political will to do it is easily drummed up right now but that like it's just it's it's a good like mini visionary step like we've talked before on the show about the idea that every restaurant should be required to offer one free meal it doesn't have to be a great meal it can just be like beans on toast or like rice and vegetables or something but yeah, like you should be able to sit down and be like i'll get the free meal and they should feed you because we're all human beings because we be have great. these restaurants everywhere like we have these food dispensaries that exist everywhere all over every city and they want and, 20 bucks a plate now <laughs> and like like you could just make something really cheap and have it be a law. Like it's just required. You have to have a free item. Get that rice and beans out. Right. Or even, yeah. I mean, I, I love that idea. It's the same. I've, I've complained quite a bit about why should you be allowed to have a business on, why should you be allowed to have like a, a business that doesn't have a public restroom that I have to buy something to to go to the bathroom at your business. Like, why should you be allowed to run something if you're, if, if you have that sort of antisocial, uh, antisocial way of, of running the business. And I think, you know, antisocial is always sort of used to describe people like us, but I, it, that's a word that it feels like, you know, you could take back as like so much of, of, of capitalism is such an antisocial, uh, a way of doing things. It's just made to like make two class or other classes of people, lower classes of people. So other people feel good. So you have all these buildings in like a downtown. Uh, I walk all day, every day. And there are parts of my walk that are 10 miles of a walk or three or four or five miles where there's nowhere that I'm allowed to go to the bathroom. And then I, I recently saw a story about how Starbucks is saying, 
because of the people that come in to use the bathroom, they're starting to lock their bathrooms too. And that used to be like a reliable place, you know, you could go to go to the bathroom. And it's like, you, you, you read these like tech dipshits in San Francisco and these people who are like, ah, it smells like shit and piss on the streets because homeless people are shitting and pissing on the streets. And it's like, what if you gave them a place to shit and piss? I don't think they want to like piss on just on the side of the road. you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's the lack of bathroom things is really like, it's kind of like a inhumane. Yeah. Yeah. It's something that adults do to children actually is mm -hmm. like not let them go to the bathroom when they need to. It is a really twisted thing. Like just, just envisioning someone who like really needs to go to the bathroom and then what it would take in me to tell them no, that's so beyond me. Like that. If you think about like, like the, sorry, pay up. You, you, you need, you need to buy a soda pop if you want to. Yeah. It's like the, the toilet's right there. It's empty. There's no one using it. It's literally feet away from you, but sorry. No, like, yeah, you're walking around downtown. You're like surrounded by toilets. Every building has multiple toilets. They're it's just a toilet like, paradise. We live in a toilet paradise. There's so many, <laughs> but you. like, no, you can't, you can't, not you. Same, same thing with water. You, I mean, this happened during COVID, but like I carry a water bottle with me everywhere I go. And like, I can't just, I have to go buy a bottle of water to pour into my bottled water. <laughs> Like, I can't just get water when, you know, every place has some sort of water that they you could get your hands on. And it's just like, no, uh, go buy a bottled water, then pour it in your bottle. And it's like, well, that dis defeats the purpose of me having uh, my own bottle and people need water. Like, that's just a thing that people need to have. It's humiliating. We pay people minimum wage to do this humiliating thing where they refuse others access to the washroom. Like <laughs> the, the both people on this, both sides of this transaction are victims of this demented system. Imagine having to tell people, no, you can't go. That, that, that troubles me. There's, there's nothing more pure and good than going to the bathroom when you gotta go. And in, in my library, socialist utopia, everyone would be allowed to go when they gotta go. Well, the other thing is like, there was this period of time where, uh in columbus i don't i don't know what this is at other places and we can wrap up i'm i'm almost ready to i mean you guys are fun to talk to <laughs> and i haven't done a show like this in several years so it's very fun uh but uh the the uh um fuck i forgot i lost my train of thought because i was apologizing to you for going to <laughs> no no it's cool. great you saying something about columbus uh oh there was a period of time there where you would go to a restaurant uh and you would see a sign on the bathroom door that said uh this is for customers only no lyft or uber eats drivers or people who are working for lyft <laughs> oh, were allowed right, right, right. And they would have these like specific signs and it's like, well, that is, and, and it's funny because I have this fucking theory that at least in the United States, you know, they, they talk about how people don't want to work anymore and, uh, they're having trouble getting people to work at these like minimum wage jobs that traditionally they were able to get people to work in. And it's like, they don't even know, they can't figure out that like like paying Why? somebody yeah. almost no money will make them not want to work. And that it's 10 times. I mean, if you have a, a late model car or if you have, 
you can work for Uber or Lyft and work your own fucking hours. You're not getting a good deal when you do that and you end up working more hours. But why would somebody go work at fucking Taco Bell if they if they could like at, at the hours that Taco Bell wants them to work if they could just do Lyft and do it anytime they want. That's why there is this like kind of shortage of people and you don't need a late model car to do Uber Eats or or like or Grubhub. So like people are doing that. That's why these places don't have anybody. And that's why they like sort of dehumanize them by saying like, yo, no, I mean, the customers are allowed to use the bathroom, but you are not. If you come in here and use the bathroom, that's, that's actually against the rules. And I, I find that to be like, like putting a velvet rope in front of the bathroom <laughs> is the grossest shit you can do. <laughs> Yeah, I actually did DoorDash for like three years uh, a while back, and like I never ran into that, thankfully. But and but like you have to use the washrooms in the because you can't go to the washroom at the places you're delivering to. Like, okay, can I just run in quick and like <laughs> use your toilet? So the yeah. only other option is the restaurants where you're delivering or like pissing in bottles or whatever in your car. Uh, which like, yeah, it's so messed up to like specifically deny those people who are on a job driving from restaurant to house to restaurant to house to be like, no, you can't use the toilets in the restaurant. It's like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, also, also if you're looking at it in, in, in like a capitalist way, my feeling is like, well, you know, you're, I know the restaurants don't get the greatest deal with Uber Eats, but there are a lot of restaurants that nobody would ever eat at if DoorDash didn't exist. <laughs> and it's like, I'm fucking helping you make money, motherfucker. And you're just like, no, you're I I'm sorry, you can't leave your piss here. You have to take it with you. <laughs> yeah, it's uh it's messed up. And it's like, yeah, it's like Amazon warehouses too. There was that whole pissing in bottle thing and yeah, Amazon and drivers, drivers pissing in bottles. It's like capitalists and hierarchical systems are constantly just like trying to tell people that where they that they can't piss in the available toilets because it reminds me of the <laughs> there was that story that came out maybe a year back about the Koch brothers nanny forcing them to shit at a certain time of day like they had this really strict <laughs> nanny growing up the Koch brothers that made them shit at like exactly 10 in the morning every day and made them hold it the rest of the time oh my god i think it explains a lot about their politics and uh, you know, <laughs> also society generally, you know, the controlling of the controlling of the bowels and the urine. How repressive do you have to be to to make the Uber Eats drivers hold it? Yeah, and it is it is like so. You can't just talk to the person that puts that sign on their door because it's not the person working at the counter. The person that's working at the counter doesn't give a fucking shit if an Uber each driver takes a piss at the at the restaurant. They don't care. It's the it's the owner of the place that is putting the sign there. And like you'll never it's it's the thing that drives me crazy about uh like the american political system anyway is like you will never get to ask why like you'll never get to ask a person like what like when weed weed being illegal or scheduled as like a dangerous drug there's you're never going to get the chance to ask the person who thinks it should be like the person with power who thinks it should be illegal and that it is a dangerous drug you're never going to get the chance to talk to that person yeah, you Absolutely. only get the middle managers, the like enforcers, the people who are yeah being 
maybe we'll check and get back to you at best. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Never, never actually hearing corporate yeah, speech, no yeah. accountability through hierarchical, like command and control systems and ownership and stuff. There's yeah, a real lack of accountability. And l l like we were mentioning before, the, the conversation is just such a beautiful human thing. Um, and to think about like the ways the system like takes conversation away from us, uh, like takes us, takes away from us the chance to like connect with people or confront people or like have meaningful dialogue that makes an impact in the world. Like, I, I think it'd be good if we had a world where what people said mattered a little more, mm -hmm. more people could, could weigh in and have it actually matter. Cause I think people get really worked up and like some of the stuff you see on Twitter or, um, like Facebook comment sections where people are just like completely flipping out. I think it, it has a lot to do with like knowing that they don't really have a voice. So they're just like trying to turn up the volume to 11 um, as like a coping strategy for just knowing that it's like the system doesn't work for them. Their voice doesn't have an impact. It's not proportionate. It's not fair. And so, yeah, it's, it's a reason that I think causes, I think it, it's part of what causes that like internet behavior that we're all familiar with. Yeah. You don't ever get to just, I mean, like, you don't ever get to just say why. What, uh, so why? What like, This thing has to happen. You're like, why does this thing, why? And then nobody ever, at, like, that's what's funny uh, in, in, like, in the, in the 2000s and shit when uh, George W. Bush was president, uh, a lot of the liberal commentators would say, like, he's not doing any press conferences this is bullshit and now that's been a talking point for every single president and for me it's like i mean what's the fucking point anyway and like these these press conferences don't they don't ever ask the question either because they'll lose they'll, they'll lose access so like we never get to ask why like why is lsd illegal like what is what is the actual fucking reason why lsd is illegal or like what is the actual fucking reason that the military has to have this massive budget like what are you using that money for and i i, I mean even if they lie i would fucking rather make them lie to me so i can say you dumb lying motherfucker <laughs> than than like letting them just never have to grapple with these questions because you know that joe biden doesn't grapple with any questions or justin trudeau or, or like any of these you know these these western governments they don't ever have to grapple with any of the fucking questions that ruin people's lives and uh it, it it's simple it's a simple question of why to get them to explain what the fuck, why these things are happening. And it, it frustrates the shit out of me. And you're right. It, if people could just find out why this is happening, I think the, the, the meanness on the internet would go down quite a bit if there was a way. And it, it, it's so frustrating with the internet. Cause it's like, now we like, like I can understand the periods in history where like the journalists were the ones asking the question because nobody could communicate with them. But like, we don't even, it's so crazy to me. We don't even look at the internet as like a possible way to, to build consensus at all. We never look at like, we never look at like, maybe it would be better if we could get the maximum amount of people's opinions on how things are, then like representative democracy and and like all of this shit it's not like the the fucking elections are working anyway you know <laughs> so yeah. it's like for me it's like 
you know, you used to hear a lot when you were a kid, when I was a kid, they would talk about direct democracy and how it's impossible. It's not, it's not a thing because so many people have so many voices and there's no way for that news to travel um, or, or that opinion to travel. And I just think that's all over now. It, it's ridiculous that, that we we're kind of doing these representative democracy shit when we, if we could figure out a way to frame the questions, uh, yeah, we could definitely I feel get the like answers. You technology, it could be a huge part of that. And also just like more localized versions of democracy where people can make decisions for their own neighborhoods in their own neighborhoods mm -hmm. or for their own companies within their own companies. Like you don't need super high technology democracy apps to have nope. a democratically run company. Like the, there's no reason why a company has to be set up so that the boss is allowed to tell the people at the cash register to tell the Uber drivers not to use the bathroom. Like the, 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 the power set up there has like nothing to do with like any type of necessity at all. It's just like raw power demonstration. I think that's too why you can't ask them questions because like the, a lot of the time the way authority wants to answer questions is because I said so. Yes. Uh, and like, like that, just, that's my yeah, favorite part of Papa and boy. boy. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you know, why is LSD illegal? Because we said so. Why can't yep. you use the bathroom mover driver? Because I'm a boss. I said so. I own this place. So that that's, as far as they're concerned, there's no reason to ask them the question because you already know the one answer to all authority questioning. A, a while back, we did an episode on direct democracy called democratize everything and um, one of the things that we I remember reading during that David Graeber said something interesting about direct democracy like one of the common objections that people give to it is like you can't have everyone voting on everything imagine if you had all the people flying on a plane voting on the size of the wing before it takes off um, <laughs> and like that's obviously just like absurd and like not the purpose or function of democracy. Uh, what, what Graeber said was that democracy isn't about everyone having a voice on everything all the time. It's about specifically having a voice on the things that affect them that they want to participate in. Um, and that's precisely what's taken away from people under a representative democracy is that we're affected by all these enormous things outside of us that impact us so profoundly, whether it's our car breaking down, not having access to healthcare, a variety of things that these huge systems impose on us. And we have absolutely no say in it whatsoever. Our voice might as well not exist. Uh, and so I think a good direct democracy would aim to emphasize like what actually affects people as being like the core of democratic purpose. Yeah. If you ask me if I want to say on wings, I'm like, nah, the engineers, they got that figured out. They, yeah. they can do the wing sizes. I'm all good. If you ask me if I want to say on whether or not I can go to the bathroom, uh, I do want, I do want to <laughs> say on that. Yeah. And when you localize it, like when you localize something like that, uh, there's things, I, I'm a firm believer that when you, if you localize these decisions a lot more, like a lot of these decisions, like way less like federal law sorts of shit. Uh, honestly, I think you'd, you'd be surprised at, at kind of how, how socialist it might look in, in term, like, because we're not like, we're not feeding our politics through these avatars like Joe Biden or Donald Trump, where we're talking about the actual issues where we know that people want 
people want that people want health care they want like drugs to be legalized they don't they don't want the war on drugs it's not something that it's not something that anybody's asking for and like i think that you we would be surprised if if we started talking about you know sort voting on issues rather than voting on people and and i think one of the main problems with voting on people is is like they're not affected by the by the rules they like they don't have to follow the fucking rules we have to follow the fucking rules if they get caught with coke they don't get in trouble i mean people in the news might be like oh my god you know that guy got caught with coke but like he doesn't they never go to jail or any of that shit and we go to jail for that not them so uh i don't know how they could ever i don't know how they could ever meet our interests so uh yeah i i just man you guys are great thank you for doing the show <laughs> Yeah, yeah thanks, was, thanks for having us on yeah no it was, it, was, it was great talking to you really good to meet you after i've listened to you before so it's 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 always neat to cross that bridge of from it's parasocial so cool. to social it's so cool i i like i said but since you guys have been around probably 2015 or so they they i have had people get a hold of me and say do you know those guys you guys should do some stuff together and um i'm like i don't know those guys and uh I get anxious asking people to do stuff. I mean, I still, I've said this in the past. I, I still look at street fight as a show that 200 people listen to. And, uh, uh, it just makes me nervous. So this, this guest, this guest, uh, uh, new thing, the guest host thing that happened since, you know, the split has been like, really for me, it's like, wow, I am, there are so many interesting people that I have to talk to. And you guys, you're great. Pop and Boy is fucking so good. It is listeners of Street Fight need to watch Pop and Boy. And the first episodes on YouTube, you said, and Newgrounds soon. Yeah, yeah, that's that's right. Yeah, it's up on YouTube now, and we're adding it to Newgrounds today in the spirit of uh, 2000s Flash animation. It was animated in the 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 modern incarnation of Flash. Um, so yeah, the yeah well yeah thanks Me for saying means that. tv's youtube channel uh and means.tv uh for the whole series they uh you can sign up on there and uh yeah fourth episode came out today um you know it's hard to pick between your babies but i think number four is probably my favorite um but also the finale is really good next week um they're all favorite, really good i love my own show my favorite <laughs> is the vegetables uh uh episode the the old vegetables uh, oh, yeah. because it's the because i said so episode but i also have to say the the episode where the two dads are at the park talking <laughs> that <laughs> scene is fucking great man it's like the dialogue is so fucking funny and uh, uh i love that one and 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 i love the concept of of virtual reality toiling so <laughs> it's really good I, I, I really love the show yeah oh, so thanks a lot and it's seriously wrong. S R S L Y wrong podcast. Uh, yep, you can absolutely. find on all the podcast app and uh, it was really good to meet you guys. I appreciate it. And now's the part of the show where I tell you as soon as I end broadcast, it's going to hang up on you. I am not being rude, uh, <laughs> but it was a real joy to talk to you guys. You guys were great. Yeah, yeah you too. Absolutely. Super great. <laughs> Thank you. This is the longest guest host show ever. So that's a thing, but, uh, Bye. See ya. See ya.
Thank you.